But if I was to read to you from Acts chapter 2 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, we would read verses such as these. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. More and more men and women believed in the Lord and the number of disciples increased rapidly. And the question is, why did Christianity spread so fast in New Testament times, in places where people were largely ignorant of, and if they heard this message, skeptical towards this new Christian message? I want to suggest two reasons. Reason number one, they prayed a lot. They took prayer really seriously. Reason number two, and this is the reason that I want to hone in for tonight's purposes, they had a special and sophisticated evangelistic technique which we in the 21st century West have largely forgotten about. Would you like to know what their special and sophisticated evangelistic technique was? Would you like to know what their special and sophisticated evangelistic technique was? Yes, you would. Thank you for asking. The answer is in Acts chapter 8, verse 4. It says, because they talked about Jesus wherever they went. They talked about Jesus wherever they went. That was their sophisticated technique. Now, when we think of evangelism, we often think exclusively in terms of evangelistic events, evangelistic crusades, if you're thinking about Billy Graham, who just recently passed uh, evangelistic services. And although there are certainly evangelistic sermons to large groups of people in the New Testament, it would seem that more often than not, Christianity spread through existing relationships. For example, quick Bible quiz. Are you ready? Who was it who brought Nathaniel to Jesus? Very good. For those of you who are switched on, that was in the passage. Who was it who brought Simon Peter to Jesus? Great. So who was um, Philip in relation to Nathaniel? his friend. And who was Andrew in relation to Simon Peter? His brother. Okay, next one. Who was it who brought all her neighbors to Jesus? A whole Samaritan town. Woman at the well, very good. Who was it who brought all his work colleagues to Jesus? Fellow tax collectors. Levi, Zacchaeus, both appropriate answers for tonight's trivia quiz. Very good. And not trivia. <laughs> who was it? <laughs> Who was it who brought his entire household to Jesus? Now, this is a really tricky one. Okay, you guys are switched on. The Philippian jailer who'd been in charge of Paul brought his family and servants, it'd be nice to have servants, to Jesus. Now, what do we learn about evangelism from these examples? We learn evangelism is primarily about relationship. There's definitely a role for evangelistic preaching, but the majority of evangelism is relationships. There's a very interesting passage in Mark chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus has just delivered a man from very serious, um, multiple demonic oppression. And this man is so excited, he wants to go out there on mission with Jesus to the world out there and tell everyone what Jesus has done for him. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, go back to your family and tell them what God has done for you. So we see that the early church spread rapidly because Christians talked about Jesus with their family, their friends, their colleagues, and their neighbors. Now, that sounds pretty simple in theory, doesn't it? Just talking to people about Jesus. But here's the question. Is it simple and is it easy? Put up your hand if you think it's very, very easy peasy, just no challenge at all to talk about Jesus with people who don't go to church. Why is that? Why is it, if it's so simple in theory, that we often find it so difficult in practice? 
I want to suggest three reasons. Reason number one, as the Bible makes clear, Ephesians chapter 6 in particular, it's a spiritual battle. We need to know that and realize it so that we're not caught unawares. People talking about Jesus is something that the devil clearly does not want. Satan's biggest hope for any person is that they would never ever hear the good news. His second biggest hope for a person is if they hear the good news that they would not accept it. And his third biggest hope is if they hear the good news and accept it, that they would never, ever, ever share it with anyone else. In other words, if you are a Christian, Satan's biggest hope and plan for your life is that you would be a private Christian, that you would keep the good news to yourself. I think the devil would probably be more upset by a church full of 10 public Christians than a church full of 10,000 private Christians. And so there's a real spiritual resistance that needs to be overcome, hence prayer. Secondly, it's becoming harder to talk about our faith in Jesus in public without being thought of as a bit weird or awkward, maybe even overbearing or insensitive, maybe even intolerant or arrogant, and maybe even dangerous. And there's a huge raft of reasons for why we've moved in that direction as a society. And the third reason why it's difficult in practice is... Fear, fear of what might happen if we do speak up. The fear of being rejected, of being misunderstood, of being thought of as strange or weird, or the, the fear of just doing a really terrible job of it. Of course, the underlying fear, common to all these fears, is the fear that somehow God will not show up. The fear that somehow he's not big enough to be able to work effectively in the context of the spiritual and social challenges and in the context of my personal weaknesses. But the real question is not how big are the challenges or how glaring are my weaknesses, but how big is our God? How big is our God? If our God is our God big enough to work through me despite all the challenges and despite all my inadequacies, the Bible's very clear and resounding answer is, yes, he is. I've become convinced that half the reason as a church that we're nervous about evangelism is because we forget that the good news of Jesus Christ really is what it says on the tin, good news. We forget that what we have to share with the world is actually something really, really good. And I saw this so clearly in this last week. I've been up at Leeds University for a week. We've been doing uh, two lunch bar talks every day and an evening talk. And I think you've been, you had something similar with, uh, here at, uh, with, through KICU at Cambridge Uni. You had events week, right? A couple of weeks ago. I, I, I haven't spoken to anyone here to see what it was like. In, in Leeds, there was just an incredible openness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Incredible openness, very little resistance to the gospel, to Jesus. Resistance to other things, yeah, absolutely, but not to the gospel and not to Jesus. The, the UK, as you know, is increasingly post-Christian in attitude. We all know that. But it's also increasingly pre-Christian in understanding. In other words, when it comes to the gospel, people around us are increasingly rejecting that which they've increasingly never understood in the first place. If we have grown up in a Christian environment, 
It's easy to assume that people who are not Christians are not Christians because they've rejected the gospel. But what we often fail to realize is that so often and for so many, because of the context that we're in today, people who are not Christians are not Christians not because they've rejected the gospel, but because they've never heard the gospel in the first place. They've never heard a message about God which they would um, understand as good and beautiful and full of hope. They've perhaps only ever understood if they've understood anything about Christianity, as something to do with rules and morality, something about judgment and condemnation, and they've never heard the good news. And they've never heard the refreshingly good news that God sent Jesus into the world not to condemn it, but to rescue it, as we read in John chapter three. They've never heard that because of Jesus, we don't have to be good enough to be accepted by God because Jesus lived the perfect life that we will never be able to live and died the perfect death on our behalf in our place in order to make the way for us to have a relationship with God and Christianity is an invitation to relationship with God and they've just never heard any of this stuff because they've never stepped foot inside of church, they never grew up in a church, they don't don't know anyone who goes to church or anyone they do know who goes to church has never told them they go to church so they've never stepped foot inside a church and no one who has stepped foot inside of church has gone outside of a church and had a conversation with them and told them about Jesus and why it is that we call this Bible good news in other words what the world still needs and what we are called to be is public Christians what does it mean to be a public Christian a public Christian is just someone who's open about their faith and confident about their faith without being arrogant in other words just willing and able to talk about our faith in a in an intelligible and a and a winsome manner without getting threatened and without getting defensive whenever we're asked questions or we hear some objections about Christianity. Now I wanna suggest that one of the best methods, certainly not the only method, but one of the best methods of creating opportunities to talk about Jesus and to commend the gospel to people in this socially and spiritually resistant context is something that we might call conversational evangelism. Now, conversational evangelism is a highly technical term, but because I'm Australian, I'm going to make it easy for you. Conversational evangelism means doing evangelism in conversation. You got that? All right, so that's conversational evangelism. Just doing evangelism in the context of conversation and relationship. So how does it work? Well, at its heart, conversational evangelism is about being genuinely interested in other people. So if you are genuinely interested in other people, then you're probably gonna find this a good one. If on the other hand, you are not at all interested in other people, if you prefer plants, animals, and inanimate objects, then you're gonna really struggle with conversational evangelism because conversational evangelism really is about being genuinely interested in other people. And if you're genuinely interested in other people, it means that you want to get to know them. And in order to get to know other people, it will mean that you'll have to engage in the ancient art of asking questions. I nearly said a naughty word, didn't I? (laughs) Art of asking questions. Now, asking people questions, just getting to know their story, getting to know their background. You know, where'd they come from? What What are they doing here? Do they like it here? Uh, what do they do? What do, what do they do when they're not doing what they do? What are their likes? What are their dislikes? What are their beliefs? What are the things that they don't believe? Now, what you'll discover when you engage in the habit of asking people questions about themselves in order to get to know them is that nine out of 10 people genuinely love talking about themselves. 
So you, you will discover this is just a little shout out to um, if there are any guys in particular. This is I learned this one by mistake, right? And you're taking a girl out on a on a date for the first time, or at least I remember being in that situation, and wanting to impress said person and thought that the best way to do that would be to talk about all myself and my accomplishments and how amazing I am. And I, I struck out every single time until someone told me the best way to make someone else think that you're interesting is to ask them questions about themselves. So I started doing that and lo and behold, the person that I took out on a date thought that I was the most interesting person in the world because I spent all my time asking them questions about themselves. This is human nature. Okay, that was for free, by the way. You can keep that one for free and just keep that in your pocket. Uh, this is human nature. How many of you have ever heard of William Wilberforce? Hands up. Okay, absolutely, almost everyone. William Wilberforce, the famous slavery abolitionist. Lesser known fact about William Wilberforce is that he was also extremely good at conversational evangelism and very intentional about it as well. He was, real, he was really good at being interested in people. He was genuinely interested in people and in getting to know their story. For example, a lady of high society once had dinner with the friend of William Wilberforce, the Prime Minister, William Pitt Jr., I think. Anyway, she had dinner with, Will, with the Prime Minister, and after having had dinner with the Prime Minister, she was interviewed by a journalist and asked, what was it like having had dinner with the Prime Minister? To which she replied, after having had dinner with the Prime Minister, I'm convinced that he's the most interesting person in the world. Well, the next week she had dinner with William Wilberforce. And the same journalist interviewed her and said, what was it like having dinner with William Wilberforce? To which she replied, I'm convinced after having had dinner with Mr. Wilberforce that I am the most interesting person in the world. That's the kind of guy William Wilberforce was. He was interesting because he was interested. And because he was genuinely interested in people, people opened up to him, they respected him, and they listened to what he had to say when he did speak. How do people generally respond to you when you're interested in them and in finding out their stories? After a while, if you've been asking somebody you know, lots of questions and getting to know them, for example, if I'm getting to know Ellie and I'm asking Ellie questions and finding out her story and getting to know her, you know, what she do, what makes her tick, you know, da, da, da. After a while, if Ellie is a normal person, and let's assume that for the purposes of tonight, <laughs> what will Ellie uh, do in response eventually? She will. She will ask me questions. She will ask about my story, my background, what I do, my likes, my dislikes, what I think about this and that. And when she does and she asks me about me and what makes me tick, what has she given me? She's given me an opportunity, an opportunity to just share very naturally about what matters to me and what makes me tick. And it's very easy to talk about Jesus in that context because it's simply answering the question. That Ellie is not gonna feel like I'm Bible bashing her because I'm simply answering the questions that she's asking me in normal human conversation of getting to know each other. Conversational evangelism is also about learning how to be intentional in those conversations. <clears throat> it's about being, inter being interested in people and getting to know their story. It's also about being, and you grow, the more you do this, the more you grow in the art of it, but it's also about being sort of able and uh, trying to ask good questions that lead to deeper and more profound conversations. So some questions just have the capacity to arouse spiritual curiosity in other people. Questions like, you know, what are you really passionate about? Passionate about? Uh, what helps you get through hard times? Um, are you hopeful about the future? 
What's your personal definition of success? Do you ever pray? Questions like these can be great starting points for conversations that naturally go into deeper spiritual conversations. Now, whenever the conversation naturally goes into a deeper spiritual conversation and you realize that you're being presented a perfect opportunity to share about your faith in Jesus, what do you do then? Well, that's when you panic if you're anything like me. Okay, but what you should try to do is not panic, you should pray. Every time you feel like you're panicking, you just say, pray, pray. It's like, you know, Pavlov's dog, I'm panicking, pray. All right, so you pray. What do you pray? You pray, Lord, help. You know, help me turn, help turn my words into something that's gonna make sense and just really be in season for this person. Just help me to share the good news of Jesus. But, you know, you just pray, Lord, help. You can, even if you don't have time to pray, Lord, help, you can just pray, help, and the Lord knows who you're speaking to. Now, a little tip is, don't pray out loud, okay? Because that's just really weird. It freaks out the person that you're speaking to, and it's a real gear change in the conversation. It's like, so just keep it in your head, all right? So now the, very, the other very practical thing that you can be doing is inviting people. With each person that you're in a spiritual conversation with or a you know, meaningful, deep conversation, try and think, is there something that you can invite them to? Is there anything that, to which you can say to them, come and see, come and see for yourself? William Wilberforce purposefully, purposefully owned multiple copies of Christian books on all sorts of interesting and various subjects with the particular aim of following up conversations with an invitation to someone saying, hey, we had a great conversation about this subject, could I give you this book or lend you this book because I think it's going to, you know, you're going to find that really, really interesting. He was really intentional about that. But of course, no one reads books today, so we can't do that. <laughs> Unless you're in Cambridge, so you probably do read books. But for those who don't, if, or if you know someone who doesn't, we also have the option of something called the, um, the interweb or something like that, whatever it is. And on this interweb thing, you can download these videos. And there's plenty of uh, videos on the internet that you can recommend to people if you've had a subject, a conversation about this or that subject and how it relates to Jesus or to Christianity. Lots and lots of resources on there. You can talk about a few after this as well. The other thing you can do, of course, is to invite people along to um, Bible study at your house if you've got a Bible study going or some sort of you know, course for people who are exploring Christianity and looking into Christianity or just a church social that's going on or you can invite people over to your place for dinner and have friends from church and, and outside of church. You can invite people to Easter or Christmas. There's plenty of things that you can invite people to. The statistics for why people who are not Christians come to church for the first time is really, really interesting. Apparently 1% come because they're invited by um, because they were visited at their door by Christian. 2% come because of a church program that they've heard about, such as a, like a youth group. 3% come because they've experienced bereavement. 3% come because of Sunday school. 6% walk in because they've seen some publicity. 8% come in because they've had personal contact with the minister or someone on paid staff. And 77% of people who come into church for the first time come in because they were invited by a friend. 77%. What is the moral of this statistical story? That we should never be afraid to invite people. After all, put up your hand if you just hate, hate, hate receiving invitations. Case closed, I'll pray for you. <laughs> so, if we invite our friends, they might just surprise us and say yes, but if we never invite them, they'll never say yes. You never know unless you give it a go.
as a famous ad in Australia said, but you've never heard of that ad. Anyway, so being interested in other people, asking questions, arousing curiosity and inviting people. As you can see, conversational evangelism involves learning how to be lovingly intentional with every person in our lives. In other words, loving them enough to be thinking about how we can give them as much opportunity as possible to just hear about Jesus and just hear this incredible good news. Of course, one thing that you quickly discover when you have conversations with people about faith and about Jesus is that a lot of people have misunderstandings about Christianity and a lot of people have questions. Questions about what Christians believe and questions about how Christians could possibly believe what they believe. It's unfortunately the case that many people today find it very difficult to believe that Christianity could be true. This was uh, what I experienced in Leeds this week, that so many people were so responsive to the gospel and to Jesus and to the good news, but their immediate question was, this sounds good, but it could not possibly be true. They've become convinced, thanks to a lot of things that they've just imbibed in our culture, maybe through stuff on television or newspapers or from school teachers or university lecturers, that Christianity is somehow irrational or that it's outdated and irrelevant or that its teachings are actually immoral. And this is where I think apologetics can be just so, so helpful. Um, it's obviously a really wor a weird word, apologetics. It sounds like saying sorry for being a Christian. But apologetics is not about saying sorry for one's faith, it's about being able to give reasons for one's faith. In 1 Peter 3 verse 15, we read the following words from the Apostle Peter. He says, in your heart set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer. The Greek word is apologia, apologetic. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have Apologetic, apologia, it's the same word that uh, would be used to describe a defense that a lawyer would give in a court of law. Always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Why gentleness and respect? Well, because those of us with healthy doses of emotional intelligence, as we, I see, as we intuitively realize, I don't have a healthy dose of emotional intelligence, but my wife does, and she intuitively realizes that the integrity of the message can be easily undermined by the manner in which the message is given. So important to do it with gentleness and with respect because it's all undergirded by love. The late John Stott once said that evangelism and apologetics are merely two sides of the same coin. Evangelism is about helping people to see that Christianity is good news. Apologetics is about helping people to see that not only is it good news, it's also true news. It's real. This is reality. This is for real. In other words, evangelism is about commending the gospel in all its goodness, and apologetics is about defending the gospel in all its trueness. And some people say, some Christians say, well, does the gospel actually need defending? Of course, we don't. Just intuitively, we realize that truth needs defending in life. If I was to say to you, does truth ever need defending in life? You would say, yes, absolutely. I say, where does truth need defending in life? Give me some examples. Maybe. What was that one? Where does truth... 
I'll give you some examples. So a courtroom, a hospital, war, banking and finance, we saw that almost 10 years ago now. Well, it's still very current today. In so many streams of life, truth needs defending. When? Well, whenever it's being challenged by lies and untruth. Why does truth need defending? Because when, when people make decisions on the basis of lies, all sorts of tragic consequences follow. And you can just imagine in those scenarios all sorts of tragic consequences. Let me ask you, is biblical truth being challenged today? Yeah, absolutely. From so many different angles. I wonder if you've heard the story, have you heard the story about the man who thought that he was dead? Okay, great, I get to tell you the story then. Okay, there was once a man who thought that he was dead. Now, as you can imagine, this was extremely inconvenient for his family. So they tried to convince him that he wasn't dead, but he wouldn't be convinced. So eventually they took him to a psychiatrist, the, the world's leading psychiatrist, who prided himself on being able to cure every single patient. Anyway, after weeks and weeks with this man, even the psychiatrist couldn't convince him that he wasn't dead. And, and he was starting to sweat because his reputation's on the line here. So he's pulling his hair out and he says, okay, if I can convince this man of one fact which, if true, would mean logically that he's not dead, then that's the approach I should take. Okay, what's a good fact? Okay, here's a fact. Dead men do not bleed. <coughs> so he says to the man, are you willing to admit that dead men do not bleed? And the man was hesitant. So the guy, the psychiatrist, took him to the embalmer. He took him to read medical textbooks. He took him to the morgue until eventually the man said, okay, you've convinced me dead men do not bleed. Now, as soon as the man said that, you can imagine what happened. The psychiatrist opens uh, a drawer in his desk, pulls out a rather large pin, leaps across the desk, sticks a pin in the man's arm. Blood starts spurting out everywhere. The man looks at his arm and says, oh my goodness, I don't believe it. Dead men do bleed after all. Okay, so you may be asking, why would I share with you that ridiculous story? And rightly, may you ask it? Well, no particular reason, actually. No, that's not true. I say popular new atheist writers would have the world convinced that Christian belief is exactly of the same type as the belief of that man in the story. In other words, a belief that we stubbornly cling to despite all the weight of reason and evidence against it. A blind and, frankly, ridiculous belief. Now, this, of course, is a lie. It's a distortion. It's a complete misrepresentation of what Christian faith is actually like. But because of the widespread influence of this lie, there are many people who, though they might wish to put their faith in God in response to the gospel, feel inside that they simply cannot do that because intellectual integrity demands that they cannot commit themselves to a blind faith, to something that, though it sounds good, could not possibly be true. They've been fed the lie that it can't possibly be true. And so if we are commanded, as we are, to love our neighbor, then surely this includes, among other things, doing whatever is within our power to help disentangle our neighbor from any lies or misrepresentations that are impeding or clouding our neighbor's view of Christianity and preventing them from encountering the truth and beauty and goodness of Jesus Christ. And that's what apologetics is all about. Simply helping people to see that you don't have to leave your brain at the door to become a Christian can often be the final step in a person's journey to Jesus. Now, I remember the first time that I ever gave an apologetics 
style talk. Um, it was on the subject of science and faith. And I had the joy of discovering, it's my first talk, you know, apologetic style talk, the joy of discovering that um, a doctor in the audience committed his life to Jesus that night. Now, he was a lovely man who had been attending church faithfully for years with his wife. He loved the church. He loved Jesus, the idea of Jesus. He loved the gospel. But he couldn't, in all honesty, commit himself to Christianity because he said, I'm a man of science and science and faith are somehow irreconcilable. But completely by God's grace, what I said that night was able to disentangle him and remove for him that final intellectual stumbling block and that lie that science and Christian faith were somehow irreconcilable was the only thing, the absolute only thing holding him back from becoming a Christian so he gave his life to Christ then and there. Apologetics is not about arguing people into the kingdom of God because we can't argue people into the kingdom of God. That's not how the kingdom of God works. But as Austin Farrer, uh, who's an Oxford thinker from last century, uh, Christian apologist and thinker puts it, although argument does not create conviction, the lack of it destroys belief. In other words, while rational argument does not create belief, it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. Now, I'm not saying as Christians that we need to that we need to know all these arguments in order to know God exists ourselves. But such arguments do help immensely if we want to show other people that God exists. Because we can talk about our personal experience of God and that's powerful, but other people cannot know God through our personal experience. By its very nature, it's, it's personal. If we want to show that God is real to people who are looking for reasons and argument and evidence that's accessible to them, then apologetics, this ancient art and practice that stems all the way back to the Apostle Paul through to Justin Martyr through to Aquinas and Augustine and Luther and Calvin and G.K. Chesterton and C.S. Lewis and Alistair McGrath and John Lennox today is just really, really, really helpful. Now, we should also bear in mind that because of the context that we're in today, where many people have no Christian background at all, it means that the majority of people that we will interact with have not grown up listening to the Bible preached and taught. So what does that mean? Well, that means that most people do not enter into spiritual discussions with the same presuppositions that you or I as Christians may hold about the Bible. They don't assume as a Christian does, that the Bible holds any authority, which means we shouldn't expect when we answer a question with the words, well, the Bible says X, Y, Z, we shouldn't expect that the person is necessarily gonna say, oh, okay, that settles it for me, thanks, great. We've gotta realize that very often, the conversation may have to start further back than just quoting the Bible. I say then just quoting the Bible is great, but it may have to include starting further back and engaging with questions that people have, such as, why should I trust this Bible that you're talking about? What is it that makes the Bible reliable or trustworthy? Um, how do we know there's a God when we can't see this God? And how do you know that this Jesus Christ that you talk about even existed? And by the way, hasn't science disproved all this Christianity? 
questions like that. Now, these are questions that sincere and honest seekers of truth are going to ask. So this is all about being willing to meet people where they're at and building bridges from there. After all, this is exactly the way that the Apostle Paul did it um, when he spoke to people about Jesus. If I had time, we could read together through Acts chapter 17. And we would see that when Paul did evangelism, when he spoke about Jesus, he reasoned and he explained and he proved. Those are the verbs that are used. And when he spoke to people who recognized the authority of the scriptures, which people were they? The Jews. He reasoned with them from the scripture. And when he spoke to people who did not recognize the authority of the scripture, which the Bible lovingly calls Gentiles, then he reasoned with them not from the scriptures. He reasoned with them using starting points accessible to his audience. So for example, when he spoke to the Greeks at the Areopagus, the Athenians, he quotes their poets, Epimenides and Eratus, and begins by speaking about their altar to the unknown God, and then uses that as a springboard to move on to the God of all heaven and all earth, who can be known because he's made himself knowable through Jesus. For Paul, it's never about winning arguments, but it was about winning people to Jesus Christ. That was the heart of why he did everything. It's unsurprising that Paul acted in this way because Paul knew that God wants us to come to him as whole individuals with all our God-given faculties fully engaged, including our minds. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so the Apostle Paul is not afraid to appeal to people's minds as he explains and he proves and he reasons he was a pretty decent apologist slash evangelist. <laughs> if you want to grow in the art um, of apologetics and conversational evangelism, the best way to do that, just like the early Christians we read about in the book of Acts, is just to talk to people about Jesus. A lot of people think, if I want to grow in apologetics, I've got to go away and do a three-year degree in philosophy of religion or something. That's absolutely not the case. The best way to do it is just to talk to people about Jesus, because the more you find yourself in conversations about Jesus, the more questions you're going to face. And as you face those questions, those questions, you're, you're going to face questions that you've never had to ask, answer before. And those questions are going to go, uh, force you to go and do some thinking and some reading and some studying and talking to some Christian leaders. And as you go back to people with some good responses to these questions because there are good responses to all these good questions then they're going to have more questions that you don't know and you'll go back and do some more study and you, you'll just grow just by by doing which is the best way to grow now remember this whenever you're asked in conversation with someone a question about uh, Jesus or about Christianity that you don't know the answer to what do you do all right, if someone asks you a question you don't know the answer to, can I suggest that you just make up an answer? Just make up anything. Because the last thing you want to do is look stupid, right? So just make something up, even if it's untrue, okay? No, just kidding, just kidding. All right, what do you do? You say, oh, wow. Um, you know, that's a great question, and I don't know the answer to it, but I can see why you would ask that question. 
I can see why it's a good question. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go, I'm do some thinking about this. I'm going to do some reading. I'm going to go talk to Ellie and Stuart and others here. And then hopefully I'm going to be able to come back to you with a, with a decent answer, a decent response. Because good questions deserve good answers. Now, if you go away and you do that and you come back with a good, when you come back with an answer, then often the conversation that flows on from there is going to be so much deeper and more profound than if you had just known the answer on the spot because the person that you're speaking to knows that you've cared enough to take the extra time and effort to address their questions. Apologetics is all about being willing to engage with the questions of our culture even if they're not easy. And there's some great resources that you can turn to. Um, one of the best ones, if I can put up on the PowerPoint, uh, which has got all sorts of inf uh, resources uh, in response to questions, is www.zachariastrust. For every click to that website, I get 5p. So, you know, click away. But that's a, that's a helpful starting point. Another one's bethinking.org, and there's plenty, plenty on the internet. Let me just finish uh, with, with, with this final uh, thought of how we respond to questions. Now, whenever you face tough questions from thinkers and skeptics about your faith, there's a really important question that you can ask yourself before you attempt to respond with an answer, which is, why would someone ask this question? For example, when someone asks a question about evil and suffering, or about judgment and hell, there's a good chance that they're not just asking from a purely intellectual or academic perspective. Only recently I was asked whether babies born with physical um, deformity are God's plan. Now, I could tell from the pathos of the, the questioner that this was a personal question. So, so I asked for a bit of the lady's story and what I discovered was that this lady had been told that, well, genetic deformities happen as a result of the fall and... Uh, the fall was not meant to happen. And somehow the lady had concluded that therefore her child was not meant to happen. That her child was not God's plan. So if I had just launched into a pat theological answer about why such things are in the world, I would have totally missed the very particular angle of her question and perhaps done more harm than good. In other words, good apologetics is relational. Good apologetics is much more than just learning 10 pat answers to 10 common questions. It's realizing that behind every question, there is a questioner with a unique bundle of experiences, uh, intellectual struggles, memories, hurts, feelings, preconceived ideas and preconditioned responses. And we need to be sensitive to that in the moment and pray for wisdom and insight in the relationship. For a lot of people, just asking a question can be a huge emotional step. So we need to be willing to affirm the question. Often just saying, that's a really good question can be so helpful for the person who's been so nervous just to ask the question and increases their chances of listening to you. Lastly, apologetics is not about just giving good answers to other people's good questions. It's about asking good questions of other people's good questions. You may have noticed if you've read the New Testament recently that Jesus loved to answer questions with a question. For example, remember the rich young ruler went to Jesus and said, good master, what must I do to be saved? 
Now, this is a perfect question to be asked if you want to share the gospel. But Jesus instead said, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. Why would Jesus answer that question with a question? Well, what he's really doing is opening up the questioner to some hidden assumptions which need to be dealt with if true heart operation is going to take place. In this case, assumptions about this, this young man had about his own goodness and the basis of his status before a holy God. Many of the questions that we face from people contain within them unquestioned assumptions which could do with a little bit of questioning themselves. Let me give you a few examples of questions that you could respond to with questions. So uh, someone says, I think, oh, surely all religions are the same. You could just ask, oh, why do you think all religions are essentially the same? It's much easier than just trying to defend straight away. Someone says science has disproved God, just say, oh, how do you know that science has disproved God? You're going to start opening up some assumptions. You obviously don't believe there's a God. What are your thoughts as to how the universe came to be here? Or you say, I can't prove God exists. Well, what sort of proof would it take for me to satisfy you that there's a God? Or so do you think it's possible to remove evil and suffering from the world without violating human freedom? Sounds like you really value inclusiveness. But does not your view that all religions are the same exclude me from my belief that they're not? Or do you think that only that which can be demonstrated in a science lab is, is true? Or are you saying it's impossible to be, say, a world-class philosopher and a Christian at the same time? Or it sounds like freedom of choice and freedom of expression are really important values for you. I agree, but tell me, what do you mean by freedom? And just for the sake of time, a final one, the, the one at the bottom of the, uh, on the next slide, um, next PowerPoint slide, just that, the last question at the bottom of the screen there, often if you're in a conversation with someone and they're just throwing tough question after tough question after tough question and you're thinking, this person's not really interested, they're just trying to, you know, throw all these questions out, you could say, if I were to answer that question to your satisfaction, would you give your life to Jesus right now? Now, nine times out of ten, people are going to say, no, I wouldn't, in which case you could say, well, what then is your real issue? These are just some examples, but I hope you can see that these sort of questions really open the questioner up to their own assumptions. Okay, so I've gone over time, so I'm going to finish by saying this. Apologetics is all about thinking how to connect with people where they're at, doing our best like Paul to find common ground and build bridges from there in order that people may come face to face with the good news of Jesus Christ, unimpeded by lies and understandings. It's about being ready to share the gospel, about being genuinely interested in other people and ready to give reason or reasons for the hope that we have, but always with gentleness and respect for the foundation of all this is always, always, always love. And that's your guiding principle. Thank you very much.